RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer. Happy New Year! Happy 2020. And uh, we uh, look forward to an exciting year of sitting ringside and following this crazy business that they call pro wrestling, sports entertainment, or whatever you want to call it. If you've been hiding under a rock, you don't know, but our guest this week, our first guest for 2020, and we hinted at it the last episode of 2019, is my old friend, uh, one of the biggest names in the business, Le Champion, the AEW World Heavyweight Champion, and one of the most creative guys in the history of the business, Chris Jericho. If you pay any attention to Twitter, uh, you saw that I was uh, honored to spend, uh, along with my wife, uh, New Year's Eve at... Chris's and his wife, Jessica's wedding renewal, vow renewal. I was only one of five to be at both ceremonies because I was at the original when they originally got married and said their original vows. My wife was not there because we had two small kids. So that's why uh, she was not there, but she got to be a part of this one. Anyway, um, great reconnecting with Chris over the past few months. And uh, I think we have a fantastic 75 plus minute chat about his career, about our fun in WCW, and questions I had that I had never got a chance to ask him. So sit back and enjoy that. That's coming up in just a moment. By the way, if uh, you haven't seen all the excitement, you could follow me on Twitter, at David Penzer, all one word. You can follow the show at Penzer Ringside. But all the action is at David Penzer. And uh, boy, it's just been going crazy. World War Three, Blackout Battle Royals, and, and New Year's Eve, uh, Reading Valve Renewals, and going viral. It's crazy. Hey, I was going to uh, start out this podcast with a huge rant. Anybody who follows me on Twitter saw that I I actually liked, believe it or not, I have no idea why, because I'm not even really a fan of the product, nor do, have I ever really looked at the angle. Uh, but I actually liked the, the Lashley wedding, Lashley Lana wedding. I turned it on uh, off a of DVR. I had, now, I will say I had a couple of vodkas, so maybe that, that skewed my... Uh, my opinion of it, but it was in a Jerry Springer kind of way. I thought it was entertaining. It's not anything you could do every week. It's not something that you could do every segment for sure, but it was a campy, overacted, predictable, unpredictable piece of sports entertainment. And and, and ladies and gentlemen, there's a reason, and I said this on Twitter uh, the, the day after on, on Tuesday, there's a reason that Vince calls it sports entertainment because he sees it as entertainment with sports involved. So if you don't see professional wrestling as sports, and I'm not going to go out on a tangent about it because I don't want to ruin a great episode uh, with Chris Jericho and the first uh, episode of 2020 going on a rant. All I'm going to say is this. If you don't like sports entertainment, you're in great luck because in 2019, 2020, there is something for everybody. If you want to see traditional wrestling, Tune in to our friends at the NWA, the Power Show, every Tuesday on YouTube. Also, to a lesser extent, Ring of Honor has traditional wrestling. If you're looking for a Japanese lucha style, of course, All Elite Wrestling 
and New Japan Pro Wrestling, which I understand is no longer on Axis, but is available for a very reasonable price. I believe $5 a month, I think, you could get their uh, 24-7 streaming channel, sort of like WWE Network. Um, If you're digging sports entertainment and you like that kind of thing, WWE, of course, that's what they do. That's uh, They're proud of it. And to a lesser extent, TNA. I was trying to figure out what category TNA encompasses. And I want to say like all of the above. They have a bit of traditional wrestling, a bit of Japanese lucha style, a bit of sports entertainment, and a bit of something else that I can't quite figure out. But I kind of dig it. My point is, I say this with all due love and respect, folks. Instead of going on Twitter or social media and telling people how much you hate what what you saw, just don't watch it. Or fast forward through it. Or turn it off. And turn on NWA Power or Ring of Honor or Dynamite or New Japan Pro Wrestling Channel or so many other, Evolve, I mean, so many other, NXT, so many other promotions out there. That's the great news. The great news is with the advent of technology and the wrestling wars of 2019-2020, you're not stuck watching this SOS, same old stuff. Have a good new year. Enjoy 2020. Watch what you enjoy. Fast forward through what you don't, and let's all be happy. Okay? Okay. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to send you to my conversation with the AEW World Champion, my old friend, the one and only Chris Jericho. All right, ladies and gentlemen, what an honor to kick off the new year of City Ringside. We're at the palatial estate of La Champion, AEW World Heavyweight Champion, Chris Jericho. And you can't kick off much bigger than this, so I guess the rest of the year is down. Yeah, uh, well, no, I, I want you to actually give me the old school Chris Jericho entrance. Like, give me the, what you used to say when it would come to the ring. 228 from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Ladies and gentlemen, from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, weighing 228 pounds, Lionheart, Chris Jericho. <laughs> that entertains you? It's great because all, all I hear is Gallows imitating your voice, which he, he nails it perfectly. I've, I've not heard Gallows. I tried to get him on the podcast, but... Uh, good chance. Yeah, no chance. Well, actually, you do you have a good relationship with WWE. You're allowed to use yeah, yeah, no. I, 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 they said reach out to him directly if he wants to do it. I never heard back crickets. Um, I just thought it would be fun since I've never heard him do the... Uh, the imitation. Uh, so anyway, we're uh, interviewing uh, Chris Jericho. If you haven't uh, figured that out yet, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it, old friend. Did I really have a choice? You kept badgering me about well, it. Well, let's start out with this before we get into like the wrestling questions and stuff like that. Anybody who follows social media knows that um, I recently uh, sold your old house as, a, as, as your realtor. I was just curious, comparing, since I, I did such a stellar job as a ring announcer for so many years, I'm just wondering how you would compare my stellar job as a ring announcer to my job as your realtor. Well, one man's stellar is another man's mediocrity. <laughs> so I'd say you're very consistent uh, either way. Wow. <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's actually, uh, you, you, you did do a great job, uh, you know, in, in a market that's very tough. But most importantly, as we were laughing, it gave us a chance to reconnect and actually uh, realize how much we love, hate each other. Mostly hate. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to see if I could get through an hour of this, but without you getting hot. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I think it will. I've Even been... when you walked in, you, you walk in like you own the place. Place. He's got such an air of arrogance. I had he Christmas stuff. cookies. Wandering there. Yeah, he said, this is for my wife. Well, for me and my wife, mostly for my wife. Oh, I don't want to get give you her props. <laughs> Love the Grey Goose uh, lamp, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so 
obviously, uh, for those who listen to the podcast, a lot of times if we're interviewing somebody who, uh, you know, doesn't have a, a lot of history uh, as far as, you know, writing a book or, or having their own podcast, we like to kind of start from the beginning and we'll kind of do that. But I didn't want to get into the whole, you know, hey, how'd you get into professional wrestling? You wrote, what, three books about your career? Four. I think four about your career or was the no, fourth, all, four, all four pretty much about my four career. about your career, and that's the thing too. And, and and to have a successful podcast, and yours is is doing well. You can't come in and ask the same old questions. There's yeah. nothing worse that turns. Well, somebody I can't who promise I'm not going to ask the same old questions. Well, but if you come in and say like the best was, was Lemmy from Motorhead one time, so, so how'd you start the band? He's like, really? Are you fucking kidding me? Like this is what you want to start with? How did I start the band? Like it's been forty years. <laughs> go 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 read a book. Go go Google it. That's great. So I figured. If I had 60 minutes with Chris Jericho, uh, what would I want to ask him? So uh, We've wasted been, about five so yeah, far. So. Are you timing me? Well, yeah, believe me, I am. Oh, Jesus. All <laughs> right, well, let's get started. Uh, we're going to start sort of at the beginning, but not about, you know, how you got involved in wrestling. I, I, one of the things that I thought was, uh, was a cool story that I saw about your career is uh, you were getting your feet wet in the business doing the Tony Candelo, Candelo tours. Uh, of northern Canada, and I saw that you were doing tours with you, Lance Storm, uh, Edge, Christian, and Rhino. Any stories about uh, those tours, uh, all those guys breaking in that are now uh, big stars in the business, and any thought that the five of you would have been where you are 20, 25 years later? You should have started with how'd you get in the business. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the thing about, if you come from Winnipeg, uh, you know, in that cow, that how'd Canada, you get in the, the business? Area, yeah, right. The Canadian, uh, kind of the Western Canada area, especially from the early nineties, late eighties, most of the guys would go through Tony Candela because he was a guy that he ran regular shows. So at least you're getting regular work. Now you always hear about the Tony Candela death tours. I never did one of those. I was far oh, too smart did. for that. I did do one a summer earlier where I was part of the ring crew. Um, that a guy called Doc Holiday, Bob Holiday, w- was the promoter of. As far as Tony goes, I never did any of the the reservations in the winter, Indian reservations. I just did them the one summer. But the thing is about that time frame is if you fast forward to about ninety four, ninety five. Uh, see, I started before Edge and Christian. I never saw Rhino on one of those tours. But you're talking about Lance Storm, Don Callis was the booker. Uh, Lenny St. Clair, a.k.a. Dr. Luther, was working there. Uh, Paul Lazenby was there. Uh, Bad News Allen, Jerry Morrow, Johnny Smith, Ultimo Dragon came up for wow. uh, for uh, a run. So he actually did a TV taping in 1995 with all those guys I just mentioned, plus other guys that were the Canadian legends like Timothy Flowers. And, uh, and then Edge and Christian were on that tour. Edge was Sexton Hardcastle. Uh, Lenny used to call him Skid because he looked like Sebastian from Skid Row. He, he, you, see, you see this kid called Skid, uh, and then uh, and then uh, Christian was the male nurse because there was one guy that was like you know like like I don't know Sammy the Psycho or something big fat dude that was a psych from the Psycho Ward, and Christian was his male nurse that wore a, a mask. And uh, all of those guys that I mentioned were all on a TV taping somewhere just outside of Winnipeg, Morden, Manitoba, or something like this. And a big Titan was there as well. And the best part of all was that all of these guys, which in 1995, half of them went to the WWE, the other half were popular in Japan or had been popular, did this crazy, wicked TV taping. Don Callis was the booker. And somebody uh, forgot to flip the switch from black and white to color on the cameras. No way. On one of the cameras. Yes, it was a two-camera shoot. One of the cameras was in color. The other <laughs> one was in black and white. 
So they couldn't use any of it. And Tony's like, ah, just dead. That would actually be cool now to look well, back I and mean, see it yeah. from black and white to He's color. He's like, oh, just edit it together. It's like, how can you fucking edit it together? It's <laughs> half color, half like, Who's going to notice? Uh, everybody's going to notice. But stuff like that would happen all the time. Kind of the, the early years of wrestling where it was a very spinal tap type of a, 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 of a, of a situation. There's no better way to say it. it that would be in right now. That would be a collector's item. Just because, well, like I said, just the roster itself. Like yeah, the roster and the black and white yeah, to color thing. Yeah, would be they should try and get those cool. tapes and stitch them together. They should they actually could. do that. Maybe AEW should do a, a, a black a, an and white color. Of, yeah, a black and white it's, color. It's got Talk everything to Keith, for my you. old friend Keith Mitchell. Hey, um, I know you worked your way through Japan, then to Mexico. Was it a culture shock going and learning all these different uh, styles? I mean, I mean, it's a, culture shock's not the right term because you know you, you're dealing with a, a twenty. Oh, I started in Japan when I was twenty. Gosh, 20 years old, my first tour of Japan in 91. And then Mexico was 93 and actually 92. So a 20, 21 year old kid who hadn't been around. So you don't know any differently. All you know is that you're learning the different styles. And I think it's something that uh, the wrestling business could really benefit from. If you're looking at the NXT WWE system, they come in, basically, they learn one style, NXT, which is basically WWE style, and they're kind of locked in for life. And that's where the best guys in NXT are guys that had worked around the world, the Roderick Strongs and the O'Reillys and those type of guys, a.k.a. the, the Seth Rollins and, and, and Kevin Owens and those type of guys. But the guys that come in just through the WWE system have a very singular style. For me, I learned not just how to perform in different countries, what works what doesn't work and there's certain things that work and don't work within any crowd um whether you're in japan or mexico or germany or whatever but more importantly than that not only was i learning different styles of wrestling but i was getting life lessons on how sure. to survive on the road sure which as you know you know for example when we were in wcw together you travel with with me and chris and eddie and dean and one of the reasons why we we're able to keep our heads afloat above all the insufferable politics is we had the life lessons of how to survive and how to get over uh and how to be on the road you know mostly had to stuff. do with rib and me well, exactly <laughs> yeah yeah because you, you you just walked right into them every time but um and, and that's my point. I think that's something that might be a little bit missing is, is the guys who get a chance to travel around the world and learn in the ring, but also learn outside the ring as well. So at the time you were in Mexico, there was another Canadian who had found his way down there and became a big star. And he was actually on our podcast this year. And um, everybody has a Vampiro story. So I'm wondering what yours is. Well, I mean... <clears throat> Vampiro, you know, very colorful guy, uh, very embellish, embellishing type of a guy, shall we say. But I will say this: in Mexico, in the early '90s, everything he says is true, and actually, he does. He kind of undermines it a bit because he acts like it was such a big mistake that that he ended up there. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew how to be this character, this Vampiro character, which just captured the imaginations of the Mexican fan base and the hearts of the chicks. He was so popular and so over. And it's Conan too, both those guys, that's the, the two things that they'll tell you that when they say it, it's real. And it actually makes me laugh when I hear Vampiro's interviews because he, he's a very strange cat because he'll make a lot of stuff up, but he'll also be really humble when he should be bra a little bit more braggadocious because he was massive. I'm talking, when I first got there, there was Vampiro comic books and pajamas and condoms and pinball machines and condoms? gums, whatever you name it. <laughs> there was everything of him. Was there champagne? There was not. That's the one thing I have on him, <laughs> but he, he, he was super, super popular. Um, 
to the point of comparing it to, let's say, Hogan in 88, that type of a thing. Wow. So, um, but like I said, there's actually a documentary about Vampiro that's apparently coming out soon. I've been waiting every day, refreshing my browser until it comes <laughs> out because I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, and the thing is, um, you know, he, sometimes he stretches the truth, as you say. But um, uh, as I said on my podcast when I had him on, the reason I know, uh, not only because you're verifying it, but at the time, Norman Smiley was yeah. a local Fort Lauderdale guy who was working in Mexico. And he would come back and tell me about this crazy, yeah. super over Canadian guy. And Ma- Magic uh, was kind of the antithesis of Vampire. Because Magic was super popular in Mexico as well. Like you said, just a local Florida guy right. who found his niche over there. He but did. Ma- Magic was very helpful to me. And a funny story involving both of them. So I started in, in Monterey, Mexico with Mike Lazansky. If you remember him, he was in yeah. WCW for a short period of time. He's since passed away. But he brought me into Monterey, which was kind of an ECW uh, ring of honor, kind of a, a minor league that had some steam in Mexico. And they would uh, outsource some of the big names on a Sunday. So there's a place called the Plaza Monumental, which is at the time, it's funny because I remember working there and it seemed like like a stadium. I couldn't believe it. it was this bull ring. And it was like this giant bull ring. We went back there about 10 years ago for a WWE show and I couldn't believe how small it was. Wow. It was like, oh my gosh, like did they <laughs> put this in the Star Wars trash compactor and squish it? But Vampiro w- would show up there because they'd bring him in because he was a big draw. And I think he considered me some kind of a threat competition even though i was a nobody and he was like i said hogan in 88 but i remember he told me if you really want to get over in this country you got to wear a loincloth and i was like what he said yeah you got to wear a loincloth they really like that stuff and i remember like why would you tell me to wear a loincloth unless you thought it'd be just the worst decision i could make but then um i don't even know what a loincloth it's is. like tarzan oh i got like you. like a little like a barely covers yeah, your loins I got a you. cloth for your loins right so a couple of months after that, after I was working in Monterey, so Sunday afternoon was the big show, and Vampiro was supposed to be Vampiro versus Magic for the World Championship, and Vampiro hurt his leg. So he still showed up for the show, but they had to find a sub, and the promoter put me in his place. So it was Magic versus Corazon, or it was Leon de Oro, the Golden Lion. And he, um, and it was interesting because it was my first main event, my first championship match, and Magic, the first time I ever met Black Magic, he didn't know me from nothing but he was the champion and it was the sunday afternoon big show to draw a hell of a house and he could have done one of two things he could have just squashed me and you know made me look like shit and walks out the champion either way or he could do the opposite and put me over and make me look good i wouldn't have known the difference either way i was too green for that right. but he made me look like a million bucks Love and me too to this day I just wished him Merry Christmas yesterday as a matter of fact did he respond because he yeah. never responds on well it's because he probably yeah. <laughs> I, I think he actually sent me a happy Thanksgiving tweet and then uh, uh, te- text and then when I responded hey we need to get together sometime crickets he's like nope <laughs> <laughs> not doing that yeah. so anyway so, so he put me over and made me look great it was the best two out of three falls I beat him in a fall wow and I remember too I got paid $500 American you know whatever the equivalent pesos was and because it's a championship match in Mexico Mexico back then you would get double pay so I made a thousand dollars for the one match that was the first time I was like holy I'm fucking rich and magic made me look good and then that match made it on TV which the promoter Paco Alonso saw who then directly indirectly contacted me to bring me into the into the big league so that's all because of magic and just to show that if you're a good guy in this business it can pay off when Steve Kern was looking for somebody to help train I suggested Magic, and they brought him in, and that was about 10 years ago. He's still there to this day. And everyone loves Magic, especially the Divas. 
Do they? Oh yeah. The big wiggle. Oh yeah. They all love <laughs> Uncle Norman. Yeah. Yeah. He's a he's the nicest guy in the world. Maybe other than Bobby Eaton, I don't know. It's it's yeah, close. Yeah. Bobby Eaton just called me last week. Hey. Um, so we talked about culture shocks going from Canada, Japan, Mexico. The, I'm assuming a real culture shock to you would have been after all that getting plunked right in a southern territory called Smoky Mountain Wrestling with uh, Jim Cornette and totally different than probably anything you had seen before. How, how was it going into that environment and how much of a culture shock, if any, was it, you know, to see that southern style of territorial wrestling? Well, I mean, that was a big culture shock, yeah, because when you go to Mexico or, or Japan or, or Germany, you're expecting it to be different because it's a different country. Now, Tennessee's a different country from, 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 from Canada, but it's the States. It's pretty much the same. When I went down there, though, man, I saw things I'd never seen before. The first time I ever saw a blooming onion was in Knoxville. I was like, what the hell is this? And then, uh, uh, I remember we drove past a big billboard, and I said, uh, why is Burt Reynolds on that billboard? And so that's not Richard, that's not Burt Reynolds. That's Richard Petty. <laughs> I'm like who the hell is that? Yeah, and um, you know, driving in traffic, and it was like crazy traffic on a Sunday in Knoxville, and like wondering why there was so much traffic, and wondering what everybody, what everybody was volunteering for. I couldn't figure it out because all the cars said and hats said volunteers, and they're going to. Be, oh. I was like, what are they volunteering for? I had no idea that college football was that big, and then such terms that jeet yet what jeet jeet what jeet did you eat or VCR? What? VCR? But um, from a wrestling standpoint, too, it was a little bit of a culture shock because I came in there as a tag team partner with Lance Storm. Right. And I had come straight out of Mexico and Japan. I actually cut a deal with Cornette where I could still work in Japan, but I was making so much money in Mexico, he had to pay us a lot of money to go, which gave us uber heat, heat right off the bat because you got guys that are making, you know, 200 bucks a week. I think I was making 750 or something like that a week wow. in Smoky Mountain. Um, but from a work standpoint, I remember Lance and I would try like different finishes. That was our gimmick. We'd do a different finish. And then one of the nights we did a, a double top rope drop kick where we climbed up the top rope ourselves, like kind of linked arm in arm and both did a beautiful drop. I'm sure the Rock and Roll Express were thrilled with that. Yes, the the Rock and Roll Express were the top tag team in the territory, used the drop kick from the mat as their finish. (laughs) And of course you don't know the stuff when you first start out. So I'm sure they, they, they had our number right off the bat, but um, I learned a lot about how to slow down. I mean, I was doing like, you know, dragon suplexes and super kicks to the face. These poor local guys that were used to taking a hip toss arm drag, you know, poo poo spot where the, they ever heard of the poo poo spot. No, so I was probably, but I the heavenly bodies were, were on top as Tom Pritchard and, uh, and, uh, Jimmy Del Rey against the rock and roll. And, uh, one day Jimmy Del Rey was in there and he starts like holding his stomach in the middle of the ring. He's like, hold on a second and runs out of the ring. Like he's got to take a dump. And about, you know, two or three minutes later, they're beating up Dr. Tom. Jimmy runs back in. He's got a big, long roll of toilet, toilet paper, paper hanging out the back of his tights. So that's the poo-poo spot. And of course, the rest of the match, all they would do is like double stomp him in the stomach. And he'd be like, oh, <laughs> that's Southern wrestling, right? For me, I'd be out there, okay, well, I'll, do, I'll do a moonsault, and then I'll, I'll, I'll do a shooting star press, and then I'll draw, do draw dragon suplex. Uh, but what I really learned there was the, the art of the promo. Because not only did you have the obvious guys like Jim Cornette, you know, a guy like Dr. Tom Pritchard cut a hell of a promo. Sure. And guys like Dirty White Boy Tony Anthony and Tracy Smothers. And the guy who cut the best promos that I learned a lot from was Bullet Bob Armstrong, who was the, uh, the father of Road Dog and, and the Armstrong family. And he cut just amazing promos. I remember one time he came in there and he's like, what, what do you need me to do, Jimmy? Well, I want you to talk about this and say this and mention that. And then he cut like this three-minute, four-minute amazing promo. And then when it was done, he went... 
don't get no better than that. See you later. <laughs> and just walked out. And I was like, wow. And I still remember that because it's the real art form of, of the promo. You don't have to write everything down and script it and get it approved and get it reshaped or rewritten. You just have to get your bullet points and then tell a story using your own words. And, and that was something that I learned a lot from those guys in Smokey. And to take that a step further, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but you just made me thought think of something. You, uh, I've, I've mentioned before, especially when I was talking to Chavo last year, uh, about that gray box that was in WCW where Mean Gene yeah. held court, and God, I miss him. But uh, uh, also in there too? Lee Marshall. Lee Marshall. He was awesome I too. actually did it at the end after they both said, you know, screw it, we're done. I actually did. <laughs> yeah. But you were already gone to bigger pastures. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but Chavo used to hang out in that, that gray box. You know, it'd be like pulling teeth to get some of the bigger names in there. But yeah, I remember you were there all the time soaking it up. Just well, that, that started with me. I think I told Chavo to come join me in there because what happened was you'd be sitting around all day for a TV taping, as, as people might not know, is you get there at 2 o'clock or one o'clock and you don't start till seven or eight. So there's a lot of time to sit around and do nothing. And I was <clears throat> considered not a good promo, although I knew I was, I just needed practice. How do you get practice doing a promo? Well, you can sit in your house and do it in the mirror, but that doesn't really help. So I noticed it was probably you walking around getting people like, okay, Lex, we need you or Sting, we need you. Like needs for what? We like, they got to cut local promos. So localized promos. Lex never did. Well, that's how I got in <laughs> because um, I just told Cody we should try this nowadays. You say, okay, you're going to Knoxville and Paintsville and Johnson City. You cut three different promos about your match. In one match, you're going to be with you know Lenny Lane. Your other match, you're going to be with Brad Armstrong. The other match, you're going to be with Dean Malenko. And then Jim, Gene Oakland would kind of set the tone. And then you'd say, oh, well, we're coming to Knoxville, Tennessee, Gene. I'll tell you something else, Dean Malenko. And he'd go into a 30-second promo. So I would sit in the back of the box because I had nothing to do. And watch Arn do it and Sting do it and Flair and whoever, Piper, whoever you got. And one day I was like, yeah, Lex didn't want to come. He had to go, you know, tan or something like that. Oh, who are we going to get? Well, what about that guy in the back of the room? Me? Yeah, do, do one. So I did one for like Kalamazoo with Gene. It was probably pretty bad. But the next week, someone else didn't show up. So I got to do two. And then one week I was on... Penzer's list of like we're looking you, for you. You became one of our go-tos. And that's why I went, I would do, how many do you, get, you want me to do? Uh, we've got eight. Is that okay? Let me do ten. Okay. And that's how I learned. Yeah. Because like I said, Gene was so good. The best. At being able to lead you through it. Even if you were the shits, he could lead you through. And if you were good, you could have some fun with him. Sure. Same with Stagger Lee, with Lee Marshall, because he would have a book with fun facts of every town. Here we are at the at the Van Fleet Center in Kalamazoo, home of the of the running shoe. They invented running shoes here. And I'll be here, you're, you're right, Lee Marshall. You know who's gonna be running? Yeah, yeah Dean Malenko's gonna be running when I say, and and you would learn how to play off somebody, and all of this is pure improv. That's it. And we would laugh at the end of it, just how ridiculous some of the things got. And it was a lot of fun, but super uh, uh, beneficial for me to learn how to do promos with these two masters leading me through it. You look online, there's a lot of the Gene promos from WWF that back in the 80s that have leaked since his, his death. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's pure gold. Because uh, he's just, he's taking the you know, piss. Nikolai Volkov singing a song and, you know, come on in, Nikolai Volkov. Uh, I just got to tell you, to be honest, you're the drizzling shits, you know? And, so, but, and, see, and that's something that's interesting because I did a thing with Tony, uh, Tony Schiavone last week on, uh, on Dynamite where I, I worked with Jungle Boy 
And I said, you can't go 10 minutes. Right. And then he goes 10 minutes. So I'm kind of freaking out. After commercial break, I walk up the stage and Tony's there. And he goes, well, you seem like you're upset. I said, I'm not upset. I told you Jungle Boy couldn't beat me. And he said, that's not what you said. You said he couldn't last 10 minutes with you. And I said, no, I didn't. He went, yes, you did. And we went through the thing back and forth. That's what's missing from backstage interviewers today in WWE, the random hot chick that just stands there. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. The real interviews would challenge you. Like Gene, like, oh, Nikolai, you certainly don't think that's good singing. Oh, come on, beefcake. You're full of it. Oh, get out of here. They, they would, they would show some, some balls, which would give you something to play off of. That's some random stupid question. There's one I saw with uh, last week with Mike Sanders that uh, Gene was like uh, above average, uh, he, uh, worst yeah. nickname in wrestling history. I'm above but, average. But Gene was, uh, and we're getting totally off my notes. But Gene was like, uh, well, good. That's the sign of a good podcast. There you go. Gene was like, shove it up your ass, you prick. And I, I that actually made TV, which I know you recently interviewed Vince Russo, which Vince Russo is probably thrilled with. But uh, what's that? That 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 the, that language made it on TV because oh. he he was I don't know if y'all talked about it on your podcast I haven't listened to it yet but I he was I'm not a huge Russo fan everybody knows that but I, I like him personally in all fairness to to Vince though standards and practices were all over his his, his crap well I mean like I said I mean there, there's certain boundaries that you have to follow and, and and you know things happen but but when you got somebody whose job is to be like I said, it, it was a it was a good way to to kind of go back and forth with someone when you worked with those guys. Could you imagine though now in WWE if one of the uh, if if one of the girls that were out there said, "Shut the hell up, you prick!" I mean, it, people would stop in their tracks. That's I mean, and that's and that's what you should do. You have to be the voice of reason, you know. People are stopping their tracks. So let's move to WCW, which is my comfort zone, obviously, and where you and I uh, got to meet and had some fun. You were able to find a bit of creative freedom. Uh, I don't know if you had that creative freedom anywhere else. Um, I believe it was because the Bischoffs and the Sullivans of the world were so had spent so much of their time dealing with all the big contract guys, not that you weren't big, but you know the Nashes and the Hulks and the Pipers and that that. Guys like you who wanted to come up and do your own stuff um, had uh, had that creative fr- freedom basically because there was nobody there to to say no. You just so I'm um, wondering, you know, what made yourself want to put yourself out there and 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 you know you're still green. You're obviously you're still learning how to talk on a mic. What made yourself like, for example, everybody talks about taking my my uh, the chair and ripping off my tux jacket. I'll forever be known for that. Uh, you went on to be known for much more stuff. But, for example, what made you comfortable enough to, f- to want to do stuff like that? Well, I mean, it's it just like, once again, I, I was green to a certain extent, but I also knew what I wanted to do. I knew what my character was. And the character I started playing in WCW as a heel was one I'd done in Canada for, for years. Just, ah. You know, kind of a cowardly, obnoxious heel, just getting heat any way that you could. And I knew I could do that. And, and also coming into WCW, I remember I was a little bit, not miscast, it was from a generational standpoint, because I had long blonde hair and was a good looking guy, they said, well, you're going to be a babyface because that's what babyfaces look like. Well, 96, which was kind of the advent of Steve Austin, babyfaces were the ones that told you to fuck off and, and look you know, a little bit tougher. So I knew I'd be killed as a babyface coming in, especially with the, with the constrictions of what they wanted me to do. I remember my very first time on Nitro, uh, it was me versus Alex Wright, and he went for something, and I moved, and he was going to get counted out, and I wouldn't accept the victory on a count out. 
And I remember that Bobby Heenan was like, what are you, stupid? Take the victory. Take the count out. <laughs> and when you got the lead heel commentator, who everyone loves, calling me an idiot for not taking the win, and he's right. But they thought that would be a real babyface thing. Like a babyface would not take this type of victory. In that time frame, people were like, who's this loser? So when I finally got a chance to start branching out with a little bit more flair, I was going with it all the way. And that same thing with like, I remember I noticed everybody had t-shirts being sold and I didn't have a Jericho t-shirt. So I asked Bischoff if we could make one. I designed it myself. I got it. Uh, I probably still have the original one. I got it airbrushed, showed him my idea. He's like, well, you don't make any money off t-shirts anyways. I said, it doesn't matter. Perception is reality. Can we do it? He said, yeah, do it. You can make a commercial too if you Monday want. Monday Night Jericho? Is Monday Night Jericho, yeah. which I wrote the commercial. We produced it probably with Keith Mitchell, whoever it was, and they showed it on air and it was a pretty funny commercial. You can go see it online. Um, but that was always just me just coming up with stuff. And I remember I would ask Eric, can I say a promo before my match? And he'd say, yeah, just make sure it's quick. He was always very cool with that. Never asked what I was going to say. Never paid attention to what I was going to say. But I'd get my 30 seconds to say, you know, I'm the Ayatollah Rock and Roll, or I, I want you to want me, or whatever the hell I was saying. <laughs> Excuse me. But at least it gave me a chance to, to show my personality and to start the inroads of getting over because I was able to be creative and show this character that I knew I could play that was before that not, you know, allowed or able to show out. And the thing with the, the, the you and the, and the jacket was Terry Taylor. I remember I showed up one day just like when I was doing nothing. I think I'd been there for 17 months. Hadn't even signed my contract. No one noticed. No one cared. That's a whole nother story. Isn't it ridiculous? Yeah, and I remember it was about January around this time, in probably 1997, that I showed up. What would it be, 98? No, 98. I showed up and the, uh, Terry Taylor said, uh, you, know, you know, Terry, what's up, kid? Nothing. You know what else? Is, or, or, you, know what's, or, you know what's up? What? Your career. We're going to put a rocket on your ass and <laughs> here's what you're going to do. But he's the one that first, that's why I have great respect for Terry Taylor. He's the first guy that ever saw or had an idea of what I might be able to do as a heel and actually because he was the booker at the time put it in place and once I got the ball off I went I believe that was on Saturday night that nobody paid attention to correct yeah I think it might have for some reason I'm remembering a thunder where we did it but it might have been Saturday night but bottom line was like you said it was just a, a throwaway angle let's see how it goes and once I had my chance I went with it all the way. And then the next week I brought another jacket, then ripped that one off. And I still, still to this day, it's actually pretty funny when Jungle Boy pinned me, or I can't remember, something happened a few weeks ago where I grabbed the chair and just started slamming it against the, 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 turn, uh, the turn post, the, the, the ring post. They took that and then took the one that I did with you in 98 and did a side-by-side -side comparison. Some fan. Oh, my God. Like, I got to look Here's Jericho. Up. You know, nothing's changed. It's me slamming. It's just I slammed a little bit quicker back then. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, back then you slam it 10 times. This time I'm taking my time three times, but it's the same shtick from 20 years earlier. So in early 1998, you had your first flirtation with uh, the list with the uh, 1,004 holds. With uh, with I actually uh, my youngest son who's 22, so he's not that young. Uh, never was a big wrestling fan, but I was telling you earlier, he's a, a huge AEW fan, and so I was showing him last night that that uh, promo with the list because I told him it was very similar to the one you did where uh, uh, the guys you weren't going to wrestle in 2000 in the end of 2000. It's a little homage for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm I'm actually really curious. Did anybody look at that list? Did no. anybody? I didn't think so. No. Did that anybody was, approve the no, list, or no. they just sent you out with all these pieces of paper and said, "Go do what you're going to do"? Yeah, that's um, amazing to me. That, it, well, then that's how the business was. Yeah, you know, I just said this to, on the Russo show. 
that um, my original promo with The Rock where I came out with the countdown hit zero. The only people that knew what I was going to say was Russo and The Rock because we went through it beforehand. But nobody, Vince never proved it. Vince never read it. Vince really had no idea what I was going to say. Probably didn't even know if I could really talk because he didn't know who I was. And the the, the you know the list uh, thousand four holes. I mean that that was Disco Inferno's idea. Oh God, you have to give him credit. Well, and I always do because, like I said, Disco was one of those guys. He would come up with ten ideas. Four of them would be great. Six would be shit, and he wouldn't know the difference between it. <laughs> he still but, doesn't. Yeah, but the ones that were good were good. And the, I remember. I remember the one thing I remember was Raven was was adamant. You have to put the three handed family Gredenza in it. And I never even heard of it. I didn't think it was funny, but Raven was, you know, he's like, yeah, you got to say it. Come on, come on. And he was getting on my, I got my nerves so much. I said, fuck, I'll say it already. But my idea was, well, I'll just say armbar over and over again and throw in some other funny stuff. But the best part of all was that it's actually twofold. It was all one segment. And it started with me wrestling Marty Jannetty, which is right. the only time I ever wrestled Marty. It was one of my, you know, inspirations when I was a kid. I loved the Rockers, Sean Michael Marty. So it was the only time I ever wrestled Marty. And I felt so bad because I had to beat him in like a minute because I needed three or four minutes for this stupid fucking list thing. So it was the only time we ever crossed paths. I beat him so fast. Then I grabbed the list and then I start reading and we went probably 10 or 15 and then we went to commercial break. And then I instantly switch to start just burying the city of Chicago uh, you know, the Bears suck, the Blackhawks suck, everyone sucks, you know, whatever's for two minutes. And then with 10 seconds left, I'm like, 704. Oh, yeah. What's that? <laughs> the 704. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, I, like I've been reading all the way through and people just booing, like, boo. They must have thought that, oh, what a genius. But that was all uh, disco and, and then and then the rest was just me. I knew that, I knew just just knowing how you are and knowing how there was back in WCW, that, and people would find that shocking probably now in the way the wrestling business is so heavily scripted and monitored that you walked out with that huge roll of paper and nobody had a clue from the office what what was on well, there. It's the same thing you said, the list I just did the other day where, where I did gave. Did anybody have a? No one had a clue. Wow. I just set the writing and whatever struck me as funny, like, okay, well, so who have I beaten before? Okay, Scorpio Sky, I want to name him. So Scorpio Sky, uh, Otuko Scorpio, any member of the Scorpions, <laughs> like just anything that made me laugh. And actually, my friend Dr. Luther was there, who, who, who were bringing in to to AEW. One of my oldest friends is in the business, and I was just reading the list, and he's just he's got the same sense. He was just like, "That's so." I have the same sense. You're right, right. And, and I feel like half the stuff you do on that show, you're doing it to entertain me. The skit with uh, 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 the the parody of the Cody uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for the world title skit. Uh, it's it's like the same. We, we have the same sense of humor, and uh, yeah, it's. Well, uh, I mean, and that's the thing about being a heel it's cool to have the comedy side but then you gotta you gotta take it back you know if you go all the way comedy all the time you're not going to be a heel for too long so if you're going to go to those places it's okay but you have to also as soon as you say it tell everyone to you know shut your mouth or whatever you're going to say because if not then you just become the worst possible thing which is the the uh elusive cool heel which you never want to be and that was the whole kind of mo for the nwo back in the 90s right. which killed all the nondescript you know no-name baby faces like myself well speaking of that uh good segue at some point you got frustrated at wcw do you remember any particular moment where you started to think about bailing uh um, yeah. they talk about the goldberg thing i don't know if that's true or yeah. not is that what it happened well, i mean and, and once again 17 months from from august of 96 let's say december of 97 
I didn't have a contract signed. And that in December 97, I was when I think it's right after that man of a thousand and four holds, which was in the United Center in Chicago, which is the only time I can recall as being in the United Center. The next day I flew to Connecticut to meet with Vince at his, at his house, which is a crazy story. But, um, that's because they were, they had their eye on me. And I, and I was like, you know, I should, well, I could probably go to WWE tomorrow. I would never do that because I'm not going to just walk out, but I had it in my mind what I was going to do. Um, so anyways, when you're talking about about the moment I knew that I probably wasn't going to stay, it was the Goldberg uh, where Terry had me beat up a mini Goldberg just for fun. And Goldberg got super mad, but the people loved it. And then we went to this, this thing of, you know, uh, Jericho one, Greenberg zero and Jericho two, Greenberg zero. And it built up to where my idea was to have like the ultimate squash match like I'd seen. Road Warriors versus Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond, which was like, it was one of the best matches I've ever seen. But it was a total squash, but it was a great squash. It was a well thought out squash. And, and Goldberg just wanted to beat me in a minute like everybody else. And I actually weaseled myself out of it two or three times where I show up, okay, Goldberg's going to beat you. So I'm like, no. Like, can you believe that too? I was like, no. I'd go hide out in the stands. Like, <laughs> they're looking for you. I would just not show up. I'd be hiding. And finally, they like what uh, uh, you know. It's it's it's. Do you find Luger up there? <laughs> yeah, Ben won Luger. <laughs> um, I I went to Nassau Coliseum, and this is another time when they wanted Goldberg just to beat me, and I said no. And this was a time where Bischoff was like, "Okay, this is this is enough." You called me in his office, and it was me versus Bischoff, Goldberg, and Hogan. Hogan was in there for some reason, and once again, imagine the the steel balls that I had to just be saying, "You guys." This isn't the right thing to do. Like, and, and then Goldberg's like, you know, you, I'm the guy that stands in the fire when I have my re-entrance, and I'm the guy this, and I'm the guy that. And I said, you're the guy who would go down in a crumbling heap if I kicked you in the balls right now. And Bishop's like, hey, calm down, calm down. And I'm like, what do you think you want to do? And I'm like, listen, there's a pay-per-view this Sunday. Let's book the match tonight, have Goldberg. I'm not saying I want to win. I want him to kill me. Have I believe him. you were going you were gonna actually have him spear you out of your boots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I used years later with Jack Swagger when he power bombed me out of my shoe, which went into the rope. Yeah. But yeah, I was gonna have him spear me out of my. Out of, I was gonna wear amateur wrestling shoes and, and kind of push him down to my heel. And when he speared me, kick as hard as I could and have the the boots. Because I remember talking to you about it, and you were like, "I don't understand. It's not like I want to beat him. Yeah. I actually want him I to spear lose. me out of my freaking boots. I want it to be the best squash ever." And. So I remember they said, what do you want to do tonight? I said, okay, well, how about I go in the ring? I'll start cutting a promo. It was Long Island, Nassau Coliseum. It was actually on my birthday, November 9th, probably 1998, let's say. And um, Goldberg will arrive at the arena, see me in the ring talking, and then I'll go to walk out. He comes in and spears me down the aisleway. Biggest spear of all time. And then we'll do the match on Sunday, and he can kill me. And I remember Hogan was like, Okay, well, let's see if it works. And Goldberg was still kind of mad, but but see, Bill and I started out as friends, and we're actually really good friends now. But for ten years, we weren't because of all that shit and because of people getting into our heads. Sure. And we started out as friends when he first came to WCW, and then as it went on, he, as I remember I borrowed Kidman's elbow pads because I was like, he's going to kill me with the spear. It's in the aisleway, and we go into the ring, and I'm doing my promo, talking about how great I am. I remember I, I was so mad because Gene. Never gave me my cue. I, I told him three times, I want you to say this line. He never said, I want him to say, Shirley, I don't think you could be Goldberg. Yes, I can. And don't call me Shirley. Of course, he didn't do that. But um, he comes there. I'm in the ring. I walk out with my back to the entranceway, waving, turn around. There's Goldberg. He runs and spears me like 30 feet down the aisle. 
Um, and then I said, pick me up and throw me in the fence. He grilled, pressed me into the fence and he beat the shit out of me, right? And all of that was great to set up for the pay-per-view the next Sunday. That never happened? I get there the next Sunday. Uh, Bill decided to go hunting this weekend instead. Hold on. Don't look at your notes. Think about that. Bill decided to go hunting instead. He's booked for a pay-per-view and decides to go hunting instead. So then I work with Bobby Duncan Jr. They have, I put, uh, they have him put me over. I win. And it's never referenced ever again. That was WCW. Right. Like, I don't feel like showing up. I'm just going to go hunting. Crazy. So we've already established how a VPN protects your privacy and security online. We all know that. But what I didn't know until recently, and it's taken my TV watching game to the next level, is you could use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to Ben's watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australia's Netflix because I love the Carlton. It was so simple, I just fired up ExpressVPN on the app, changed my location to Australia. You could do that. It's unbelievable what you could do. Refresh Netflix and that's it. See ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You could choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries that you could go through. Do you love anime? My son loves anime. You could use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away, but it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or la- I hate buffering on a computer, and there's never any buffering on ExpressVPN. And you can stream the product in HD, absolutely no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, of which I got one for Christmas. Thank you, hon. And more. So you can watch what you want on the go, or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash ringside, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free and binge watch The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Do the Carlton just like I did. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself. Go to expressvpn.com slash ringside, R-I-N-G-S-I-D-E, and you could watch what you want, protect yourself, and get three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash ringside. So when you spoke to Vince, what did he say to you that convinced you to make the move? Or it sounds like he could have just said, hi, I'm Vince McMahon, come work for me, and you were so frustrated you'd have gone. Well, and also, too, you got to remember, I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, right? So WCW was a non-entity for me. It was all WWF. That's what I wanted to do. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I went to WCW because WWE wasn't calling me. So my whole goal was to go there for three years, hopefully get the eye of the WWE and, and go there. And so it wasn't it, it, basically what you said is the truth because Vince didn't say say it like that. He said it very nice, you know. We'd love to, you know. Heard your contracts coming up. Give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. You know what? what, what you know what I mean. So he, he was being very sweet, and Bischoff was being very angry at the time. And, and Eric and I have talked about this many times. Another guy who I'm, I'm very good friends with now at this point in time. Uh, and who I, I really respect too, because I understand how much shit he was up against, which you don't you don't know at the time, right? No, no. And not only all the egos, all the corporate stuff. Too. Everything he, yeah. he had he had to deal with everybody, yeah. and that's why, like, for Eric to do what he did, you know, it might have fallen, 
but he did a tremendous job. I knew about the egos. I was not aware until later on, the last like five years of all the corporate, corporate craziness. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but 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 Vince was being very silver tongued as he can be, and Eric was being very. Uh, what's the opposite of silver being very uh, volatile tongued as he can be. So it wasn't even much because I remember at the time they offered me some kind of strange structured deal where if there's 10,000 people in the crowd, you'll make this and that and the other thing. Basically, it was like something like 750 grand or whatever. And even that, like I said, if, you, if I'm not getting offered as much as Stevie Ray and Scott Norton, I don't want to be here. Because at the time, nothing against those guys, I was way higher up and had way more potential. I think those guys were making... 800, 900 grand a That's year. That's crazy when you think about it. And that. I still wasn't offered that. And, and, and Vince, I remember I met with, with JR and, and, and Jerry Briscoe at the, uh, was it called the Bombay Bicycle Club over, it used to be over at the, at the end of the Courtney Cox Bridge, yeah. right? And, uh, and the, the offer was 450 grand a year for three years. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was way more than I made WCW and way less than what they were offering, but I didn't care. It wasn't about the money. I got a, a great offer from WWE. They wanted to bring me in. They were being nice. Bischoff was not. I remember it's the famous line that we laugh about to this day that uh, he showed up with, with the contract because we had made verbal a verbal agreement on the contract, Eric and I, and then I never heard anything about it six months. And I'm like, if this was Hogan, they would have got that contract to him in six minutes. So I was Private getting plane. insulted. Yeah, yeah. And by the time uh, he finally had the contract, I was the U.S. was a U.S. champion, a oh, TV champion. And I show up and he's like, listen, I, uh, he's got the contract here. If you don't sign it, uh, no ticky, no laundry. And I'm like, what? No ticky, no laundry? Like, it's like an old, if you don't have your ticket, you don't get your laundry. If you don't yeah. get the contract, no. you don't get to keep that title. And he goes, no ticky, no laundry. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not signing this, but then we're, you're going to lose the strap tonight <laughs> to Conan. And listen, I love Conan. And we actually, we had a really good match. I remember probably one of his best that he had. And I told him, remember he used to use that uh, tequila sun, sunrise? was yeah. his uh, dipshit, horrible looking. I said, you better lock that thing in. Because if I'm tapping out to it, I want you to make me tap out. And he locked it in. It was snapped my freaking knee. And I was like, okay, 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 okay. But, you know, it's one of those things where, like, they would use those titles as, like, currency. Not realizing, they did the same thing with Benoit. And, you know, you'd be the world champion if you don't leave. Like, we don't give a shit. Lose, win, I don't care. Just let me, show me some respect and let me get to the level where I know I can get that's going to make more money for you guys and me, for the company. So I was ready to go uh, way before that. I figured, yeah. Um, before we get to WWE, uh, WWF, tell me about Ralphus. That's one of those things that you, you come up with lines like bubbly and all yeah. of a sudden you sell 20,000 bottles of champagne and Ralphus and he's out there signing uh, autographs and taking, uh, taking pictures like the, like a huge star when he's the ring guy. He had rats and everything. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, we was, Arn, he Arn got, he got in, a big head, actually. Arn comes in and goes, damn it, Jericho. Your boy's out there banging some chick in the front seat of his truck. You got to get him to stop that. I'm like, first of all, he's not my boy. Second of all, have you seen the chicks he attracts? I ain't going nowhere near him. Yeah, this was another thing where, where once again, when Terry had this idea for me to, to, to uh, fight the uh, mini Goldberg, I was like, okay, well, the real Goldberg walks out with a security detail, so I need my own security detail. And there's always, like, power plant guys hanging around. And at first I was like, well, I'll ask him. I'm like, that sucks. Like, why? Well, he comes up with big guys. I should come up with, with the opposite. What can I find? And so there was this guy, his name was John Riker. And he was uh, a guy who drove like the lighting rig around, a big trucker guy. 
always super friendly. Like for about six months before, whenever I see him like in Cater, hey, how you doing? Big space between his teeth, like these giant, like I call them like uh, in Vietnam, if you're a soldier, they put these punji sticks or like spikes, he would step on them and he would kill you. He had like these punji stick teeth that was sticking right out the sides of his <laughs> mouth. Uh, he looks like a walrus. And I was just he like, did. And yeah, but he was always really friendly. And so when I was looking around for security, I'm like, well, he's got 20 muscle heads. What if I get just one like dopey looking guy? And it's like, oh, I got the guy. So I went up to him. I'm like, hey, man, you want to do something on TV? And I said, yeah, sure. What do you want me to do? I said, uh, just walk out with me and like act like super serious. Like you're my bodyguard. Sure. And could you put this on? And I made this half shirt that said Jericho personal security. And he's like, no problem. Big gut hanging out, his dress pants with his belt. And he walked out and he was the worst security guard ever because he was laughing and smiling. It's typical like when you get a guy who's not a pro and put him in a pro position. It's like if you saw this week AEW where the one local guy was missing Dustin's head with punches. That's because you don't put local guys in main event spots. Right. So Ralph was being in that spot. And thankfully, I was kind of a comedic heel anyway, so it worked. But when you watch it back, he's terrible. He's fucking terrible. But he had such an interesting look and the concept that he was my personal security guard when obviously he's just a fat old man. And uh, uh, the name Ralphus came from this, this um, movie called Blood Sucking Freaks. It's an old H. Herschel Gordon Lewis like kind of exploitation movie from the late 60s. And it's this, this crazy guy who keeps all these chicks like downstairs in the basement locked in a cage. And he's got this weird drunken midget who looks like oats from Hall and Oats, like a small size oats. <laughs> and he's just jumping up and down. He's like super crazy and weird. And his name is Ralphus. And I was like, that's, I, mean, I just watched the movie like, dude, your name is Ralphus. He's like, sure, no problem. I and everyone in the States thinks his name is Rufus. It's Ralphus. <laughs> I don't know why this popped in my head, but I always wonder what kind of like tapes uh, uh, John Oates has on Daryl Hall because he doesn't really do anything. He plays guitar. <laughs> Chemistry, man. Yeah. Hey, but, yeah. but uh, look, I, I, I'm not saying this because you're on my podcast and I'm sitting in your house. I'm, I'm being 100% honest with you. I've always said, uh, as far as as long as I've known you, you're probably definitely the most creative guy in in the history of the business as far as coming up with all the different recreations of yourself and i hope to talk about some of them coming up here in a little bit well, well just to, to kind of answer that um the reason why is, is once again like i i'm still a fan and i know what makes me laugh and so i just do stuff that like that amuses me but i also i also really know my fan base and most of the time when it amuses me it amuses them because my, my, i'm very much it's just all comedy it's very much I mentioned Spinal Tap. It's a Christopher Guest mockumentary. You know, right. I watched Dolomite last night, the Eddie Murphy on Netflix. Like, it's just, that's what it is. It's just anything that I think people might like, and some don't. Some don't understand what the hell I'm talking about. But the ones that get it, get it. And that's why I'm able to continue doing this because there's a great contingent of people who understand my weird sense of humor. And also, you always play it straight. If you always play it straight, that's something I got from when I was with the Groundlings in L.A., the improv troupe, the famous improv troupe that Will Ferrell's a Groundling and right. Kristen Wiig. And you don't try and be funny, ever. When you try and be funny, it's not. When you just commit to it and play it straight, that's where the humor comes from. And if you look at that thing that I did with Cody's parody, I told everybody else, everyone play it straight. No one's trying to be funny because at one point they're like, why don't you put a wig on and you be the old lady? No, 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 that's not funny. What's funny is we actually get some old lady and have her say how great I am. I never met that lady. I don't know. Who, I don't know who the hell she is, but <laughs> it's funny because it's straight. Like when when I go and kiss Sammy on the cheek, like because Cody kissed his wife, and I kiss Sammy. We're not laughing. We're not making it a big like oh, it's just a quick little. 
And that's where the, the humor lies. And that's why a lot of guys do bad comedy in wrestling because they don't get that. It's a very fine line. It's a very fine line. So my question is, do you look back, do you look back at a thousand and four holds and Ralphus and even the, the list uh, recently on AEW uh, that people raved about? Do you look, do you ever look back and just sit back, you know, on a Wednesday, a Thursday or Friday when you, when you're just sitting here in your house and go, that was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm my own worst critic, but I'm also not humble when it comes to saying something was good. And I think one cool thing about AEW, and I think a lot of it has to do because I've been basically unleashed creatively, is every week I could probably tell you something that was really cool every single week. Because every week I make a point of like, whatever it is, let's make it stand out and make it cool. And whether it's the match, like I thought the Jungle Boy thing we do with the 10 minutes, and then I demand five more minutes like a prick and then just walk out. Like, I love that shit because that's what wrestling is. To that's me. old school stuff. It's old school stuff. And, and, and it's old school stuff that no one uses, but it's also, I don't have to, and, and listen, this is not talking down about WWE. It's the way they do things. It's Vince's world. It's very successful. But there's a whole line of defense that you have to go through to get your idea through. It's like being in Star Wars and getting that one missile through the, the thing to blow the Death Star. It's very hard to do that. In AEW, I know if it's going to work or not. You don't have to tell me. I know what's going to work because I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And that's one thing that, that I like about our show is, listen, we've only been on for 12, 12 weeks. There's a lot of things we can do better. But the things that we're doing right and things that I see that are glaringly wrong, they'll listen to me. And so we switched a whole, a whole angle that we were about to start. And literally the two days before, I just called and said, this doesn't feel right. We're rushing this. Why are we rushing it? Why? We're trying to fit something in because we had an Atlanta show. And it's like, why are we doing that? Let's wait. We've, we've got all the time in the world. We're on every Wednesday. Yeah. And we're in, we ended up getting the Prudential Center in Newark and we're going to switch it to that, which works it way better. But had I not stood up and said, this doesn't feel right, and had they not trusted my instincts, we'd be in a whole different thing. So I think I do look back sometimes and I look back on a whole body of work and go, you know what, listen, whether you liked all of it, I can't say I liked all of it. I can't say I remember 90% of it, but I always try my best to make it great. And that stems back from WCW. I remember we, we were at the New Orleans Dome uh, when we did that string of sellouts in domes or just doing right. shows in domes. Sellouts, and they're all sellouts. Lou Orleans and I had Craig Pittman, Sergeant Craig Pittman was my match. And we had five minutes. And Duggan did a promo that went like 29 minutes long. And I had one minute to do a match. And thankfully I was going over, so who cares? But one minute. What do you do in one minute in a dome to get over and be remembered and be remembered. And I remember we went to this fucking horseshit match and there was some little kid in the front row that was cheering. I went and just picked the kid up and he's cheering. I'm cheering. Look at the camera. And like, oh, what are the whole scene? We'll be right back after this. At least I picked the kid up and people go, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, kids are always a good thing to have because what do you do in a minute? So I think because I was always able to figure out a way to leave an impression with, with anything, whether it was bad or good, that when it's really good, I can really grab you and and, and, and make sure that you remember it for, for, for years and years and years to come. Well, you single-handedly got John Riker more tail in eight months than he's had before and after for the I rest of his I tried to life. get him on Talk as Jericho, someone I knew on Twitter. He wouldn't come on? Some guy from Twitter said he works with him or knew him and gave me his email. I emailed him and he did a big league. He never emailed me back. I, I'm not surprised, quite <laughs> frankly. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him turn up at a WrestleCon or something. Well, he should. He should. Like I said, when I left WCW, because I said to Sullivan, like, don't ever involve him in any physicality. And then they had like 
you know, the West Texas Outlaws are hogtying this poor guy, and then he's doing hardcore matches with Terry Funk and Norman Smiley, and they're hitting with garbage cans. Like, that was the WCW. Oh, just put anybody in the ring. This this guy, the, the secret of Ralph is just never have him go into the ring. It's like Miss Elizabeth or, or Sonny, like when she was popular. The reason why it worked is you don't have him in there wrestling. They could have made him the manager of all the luchadors. Because remember they had all those luchadors and none of them had any personality because, well, they wouldn't allow them to. They're just a bunch of nameless faces. Guys, put Ralphus in charge of the LWO. Change it to the RWO, the Ralphus World Order. Have him bring... They would have went nuts. They could have made uh, video games and, and dolls. And they just... Pissed it all away, so he should be at WrestleCons, though. He can make some big money. <laughs> so you make the jump, and uh, you do the whole Y2J countdown, which I'm assuming is your idea. Uh, yeah. And um, I, I actually watched it last night, the segment where you came out with my son again. And um, any thought, I know you're a confident guy, but any thought in the back of your mind when, you were, when, when you're standing on that stage and the countdown's ticking down, three, two, one, that... Holy crap, what if for some reason this doesn't work? Of course. Of course. Because I, I, like I said, I was smart enough to know how, not just how the business worked, but how, how, how WWE and how Vince McMahon worked. He had no idea. I shouldn't say he had no idea. He knew who I was. He'd been told. But had he seen one minute of anything I'd ever done? I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt Vince McMahon was sitting there studying Chris Jericho tapes to decide whether he wanted to bring me in or not or decide what my personality was going to be. Now, keep this in mind, too. His genius of this, classic Vince and taking just a little detail, was having the countdown end in the middle of The Rock's promo. I mean, that's, dude, I mean, that's the whole thing right there. Yeah, sure. That one, the other one was like, I wanted my finish to be called the Y2J. And he said, no, that's your new name, your Y2J. But think about how big The Rock was in August of 99. And I'm interrupting him in the middle of this promo after they built it up for four weeks. It, 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 you know, everything's right there. It's all teed up. Now, all I have to do is go and hit a home run. But I also know, too, if something goes wrong and this doesn't work, this is, this is it. I worked nine years to get here. Sure. It could all end. Now, at the night I was there, it was incredible. It was almost like 50% of the people had been given a secret invitation, like, this is really Y2J. Some people just knew it was going to be me. And the people that didn't, when people are cheering for somebody and half the crowd doesn't know who it is, they kind of like get FOMO. Like, oh, oh, we better cheer for him too. So the whole crowd was going nuts. The promo is good. When I watch it now, it's a little bit cringeworthy because I just delivered differently lots of big cartoonish faces because I was coming out of this WCW character, not the Chris Jericho with all the nuances that I have, let's say, now. But still, at the time, you show me, and I'm not saying this egotistically, show me anybody else on that roster, with the exception of possibly Stone Cold Steve Austin, who could go toe-to-toe with The Rock as a promo in 1999. I don't think there was anybody. And I think I was able to show that right away, and then the politics swooped in, and I was cut off at the knees right off the bat because of that. Because you, it, it worked so well. So you're worried you're going to get cut off the knees if it, if it doesn't work because it works so well. It's I was too good. Sword. I was too good right there. And I had just come from WCW. And as you know, the wrestling war was real. Sure. It's not something that people, they talk about now like it's romanticized. If you, it, we feel it now with NXT and WWE. Like people are uh, NXT and AEW. If you see one of the guys in the airport, some people would not post the picture if you took one. Of like, you know, if I ran into... Seth Rollins in the airport, for example. I don't know if he would post the picture. I would. It's my old friend Seth. So the war was very real. So for me to go in there by myself with no friends and have this character who's very pompous and very egotistical 
a lot of people were thinking that was me that was pompous and egotistical. And meanwhile, it was confidence, which can be misconstrued as arrogance. So that started a whole kind of shitstorm that took me months to get out of. Well, it's funny. Uh, when I watched it last night with my son, and he, he had no idea how entertaining The Rock was back then. Right. And so we're watching this promo. He's a big fan of yours. He's big, and he loves what The Rock's doing. He had never seen it before. And he looked at me, and he goes, Dad, that's an amazing segment. And I said, and that's what we had to go against. Right, right, we right. didn't have a chance. Looking back, we didn't have a chance in hell. Yeah. We had Jericho, Stone Cold, The Rock, Undertaker, Vince, Mr. McMahon. Mick Foley. Uh, I mean, we, we, I, no, we didn't have a chance in the world. We just yeah. didn't know it because we're so full of ourselves. Yeah. Um, you finished your first WWE run. Uh, any, do you have one highlight that sticks out? Well, you're talking about from 99 to 05. I mean, oh, I think it was 06. It was actually uh, SummerSlam 05 is when I left. I'd say probably the end. Like, you know, the debut was awesome. Winning the Undisputed Championship in theory is cool, but I don't like watching those matches because I don't think they're that good. I think probably my work with The Rock was was the best during that time frame. We had really good chemistry, once again, because we could go toe-to-toe with each other uh, on the mic. And he was the ultimate baby face, and I was the ultimate kind of jealous heel. So I think the work we did, we worked quite a few pay-per-views and matches and uh, that's probably the highlight is all the stuff I did with him. And then the stuff I did with Cena towards the end where he, I actually got fired because I lost the match to him uh, at SummerSlam 05. That was a great one too. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of highs, but those are probably the big ones. Working with Benoit was always a pleasure, but I think probably the rock and the, and the stuff that we did was, was the top for me. Going back to the, the, the promo with the rock, uh, did you, because I started hearing from the guys in WCW, the Malenkos and the Eddie Guerreros and the Benoits and that whole group that you were uh, associated with, you know, I, they, they, they realized that you, now they might have not have known at the time that you got your legs cut out from under you for a while and it took you time to, to get back up there. But I remember them, you know, after that promo aired, the, the talk in the locker room was, he actually got a chance to be a main event guy. Did you, were you hearing that from the guys? Was that when the impetus of them jumping started to, to happen? Well, or? everyone was proud of me. You know, I, I was one of those guys, but I was never one of those guys. Like I don't fucking list. Like I don't play. I shouldn't say that. I don't rely on anybody the way those guys did. Like when it was time for me to go, I didn't need a group of guys to leave. Now they were lucky. They left together and they had, they had each other's backs. I had nothing. I mean, big show was there, but me and big show were never friends in WCW. We're great friends now. But um, but I would hear they were proud, you know, or they were my friends, right? So everyone's happy to see their their boy go. And I think it was almost like, you know, if you see someone break out of prison, like, you know, uh, Shawshank Redemption, and you're watching through the chain link fence going, go, go, get out, get out. So, yeah, I mean, and like I said, that's just the process of WWE. Nobody comes in and gets pushed right off the bat. Nobody, nobody, not to this day. You come in, you go through the, the Vince initiation period, and mine was probably a little bit worse because I had the ire of, of DX, Triple H, China. But deep down inside, Vince probably saw that opening promo and went, listen, whether he liked it or didn't like it, you can pick it apart all you want. But once again, you got a guy here who's 29 years old that's working for 10 years that can go toe-to-toe with The Rock. And he looks like that. Like, I wasn't a giant, but I was you know, a pretty good-looking guy, big muscles. Deep down inside, I'm sure he said, okay, this guy's going to have to fuck up really bad for me to get rid of him <laughs> because I see potential in him. Now, I didn't live up to that potential until probably 2008, but once I lived up to it, it never, I never looked back. You returned a number of times, and it was always fun to watch because you always recreate, like we talk, recreate yourself. You're the best in the business, the best in probably Hollywood or recreating yourself of the entertainment business. Um, my favorite one, and I think I texted you right after the, the 
promo, non-promo, was when you went out there and said absolutely nothing for five minutes. Yeah. And I think we texted about it a little bit at the time. What was the thought process of that? Oh, that was Vince's idea. Oh, that was uh, Vince's idea. Yeah, he said, because um, I, 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 I came back, that's when I, I can't remember which phase it was, but the guy was name was Adam Panucci. He's the guy that I worked with very closely in making the vignettes and stuff. And he was like, you know, the one thing that Jericho fans want is Jericho to talk. What if you come out the first night and don't say anything? And then Vince was like, well, what if we come up for the first month and don't say anything? And then the one that you're thinking of, I remember he said, we want it to be uncomfortable. Be out there for like four minutes. Five. Can you cry? Can you cry? I'm like, I can try. <laughs> and that came from a Hogan promo when he came back to Montreal, I think in 05 or 05. I remember that. Yeah. That was a highlight for me too, working with Hulk. We had some great matches, but he was legitimately like, you know, Hogan's great too at working it. The crowd was going nuts. The best for, at working. For probably five, and he could cry. He cried on cue of like, I can't believe, like, why? He kept going, why? Why? Like, why are you I remember for me? that, yeah. And it was such a monumental moment. I guess what Vince was wanting. I couldn't cry on cue, but it's the same idea. I remember I just going, oh, why? Why? But that was that was a Vince idea. So moving forward, the list of Jericho, how'd you come up with that? And did you have any idea it was going to be as over as it was? No, and you never do. You never know what's going to be popular and what's not. When you, once again, when you try, and I remember the big one for I thought was going to be huge was Razzle Dazzle. I thought that was going to be a big catchphrase. Razzle Dazzle. Razzle Dazzle? Dazzle? Yeah, yeah. I don't even remember that one. Well, it, it lasted about a week <laughs> and then it died of death. Uh, list was, uh, so I worked really well with a guy called Brian Gewertz in the early times and then through the whole Shawn Michaels feud and Big Show and Rey Mysterio. And then Brian now is one of Rock's right-hand man. Yeah, he was like the Rock's right Yeah, and mine too, and Kurt Angle, and the best promos that era Brian worked with. So when I went back in 16, there's a guy called Jimmy Jacobs there who um, very quickly became my my guy. And he just had this idea. He said, I think it's Steve it. Carino? Yeah, that's it, it's Carino. So I guess Carino in real life had the list of Steve. Like People pissed him off. I hope he's going on the list of Steve. Oh, really? So Jimmy came up to me and said, what would you think of doing the list of Jericho? You put anybody that, that pisses you off, you put him on the list. And I was like, sounds awesome. Like, let's do it. So the first week was with uh, Mick Foley. And then the next week I came and I had a, uh, like, a like a red clipboard that I'd written like the list of Jericho and, and um, Marker. And I think really early on after Mick went on it, the next group, uh, the next person going was uh, all three members of New Day. And I told, I remember I specifically telling Woods, the secret of this is, like, if I put you on this list, it's like the worst list you could ever be on. Like, once again, play it straight. Right. Like, you don't want to be on the fucking list. If you don't sell it or no sell it, it's going to kill it. But if I, if I say, like, watch out. No, 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 no. You know what happens? No, 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 no. You know what happens? You know what happens? You made the list. You just clicked a pen in the place. Well, that, that's that. that's when I got into it a little bit more. But the first one was like, you know, that's why I was like, you know, you know what happens, Woods? No, no. You know, that's where that came. You know what happens? You know what happens? You just made the list. And then I, once again, you hear the pop that you get. And you go, that's pretty funny. People really enjoy that. Let me see if I can make a thing of it. And then I had to make an actual clipboard out of the steel and the whole list of Jericho. And that's, once again, you never know what people are going to get into. But when they do, you got to be smart enough to, to, to catch that lightning in a bottle. You could have gone to a WrestleCon. I know you don't do a lot of those. Yeah. You could have charged a $500 to say, hey, Joe Blow, standing next yeah. to you. Boom, click. You just made the list. And you'd have probably yeah. sold 250 of them, if not 1,000. Yeah, I could go like on Cameo and do all that stuff. But I, I don't prostitute that. Like, I had to make a rule where I thank goodness Bubbly came out because it made people forget about the list. <laughs> but I had to make a rule. Like, when I do a signing, you can't ask me to be in the list and you can't ask me to put somebody on the list because it doesn't work that way. Make your own fucking list. Yeah. Like, and, and can you please write, you just made the list? No, because I would sign 10,000 bobbleheads or whatever they're called, pop funkos, 
with you just made the list. Do you know how long it takes to write you just made the list? No. And, you know, it's one of those things where, where when I was doing it, it was hot and it was awesome and it was great. If I would have went back to WWE now, I would still be expected to do it and it wouldn't, it doesn't feel right. That's a moment in time. It was a big hit single for me that I'm like, it's like cheap trick in the flame. I don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> it's, but it went number one. I know. And I want it to stay where it was and people love it and people still talk about it, but it's a different time. And that's why when we did the thing, once again, with naming the names that I wouldn't wrestle in 2020, I came up with the lexicon of the champion and people like, oh, it's just, he's just rehashing. You probably never see the lexicon again unless I need it, but I needed it for that moment because right. I had a list and I can't call it the list because then it's really kind of going back. So it was a great moment in time. Uh, it was huge. People loved it. And if I did it now, it would feel like I'm just resting on my laurels. So you'll probably never hear it again. Hey, if the list of Jericho was your flame, what would your surrender be? That's something that you think you could always bring out and uh, and would stand the test of time or nothing. Is there not anything? I mean, I I, I, I feel like kind of like Bowie when he did that tour where he refused to play any of his hits. Now, nobody wants to hear that. And it's not being pretentious, but I mean, dude, you could, if I hadn't stopped the Y2DJ chance, people would, and that's been 10 years since I allowed anybody to call me Y2J. People were still chanting it at the beginning of AEW, you know? Um, I mean, Y2J is eternal. Raw's Jericho's Eternal. The list is now. I mean, there's so much stuff. You, you just choose one. I mean, hypocrites, people still love that. You know, call me a gelatinous to broke or whatever the hell I was calling people. Um, the big word Jericho. There's, and there's, there's so, there's so many that you could, you could throw out there. And a lot of them I've forgotten about to this point. All right. We, uh, I, I know, uh, your time is valuable. We're going to wrap it up here. Just a few more questions. Um, I know you had always said that you would stay loyal, especially in the U S to Vince and wouldn't go to a competition. What made you change your mind? I know you went to new Japan uh, being in that different atmosphere in new Japan and a dome. Did that, uh, maybe change your mind or, yeah. um, it made me realize that, that, that the whole side of creativity, uh, a whole side of my creativity is being stifled just because of the WWE system and to go there. And I remember I didn't have to ask permission to put together a match. And if to tell my match to anybody there, it's a shoot. If the cameraman misses the shot, it's like a football game. If you miss the pass or whatever. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then to work with Kenny Omega, who was like, well, we could just do it. We don't have to ask permission. No, we'll just do it. Really? Wow. Like it feels like a kid, like grabbing a cookie from the jar. And it's like, no one's going to yell at me if I eat this. And then just meeting all those guys, you know, and just I like the attitude that they had. I like the the freedom, the the uh, lack of pressure in the locker room, not having to walk on eggshells, that sort of thing. And then I realized, listen, like if I'm going to continue wrestling, I want more of this and less of that. And that's kind of where it all started. What was Vince's response when you told? I'm assuming you told him. I think I've heard you say you which did. one about Japan. No, 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 about AEW. He said that's a hell of a deal. Take it. Really. Yeah. You think he regrets saying that? Well, he probably I think would he never. Thought, I think he thought I was bluffing. Because when I told him I'd take it, he said, you took it? Can you get out of it? I'm like, no, you just told me to take it. <laughs> and the difference is when I took the deal, it changed everything. Um, that's when AEW became real to Vince. And that's when he started signing everybody to major raises to sign for another yeah, five people years. People have made like uh, their 401ks uh, based on you signing with AEW. And I'm not being egotistical, but that's completely because of me. Because before that, I don't think he took it seriously. And as soon as I signed, he went, holy shit, this is WCW Oregon. Sign everybody. Give them all raises, which you could always afford, 
but wouldn't do it because who's going to say anything? Especially with the uh, Fox contract coming down. Huge. It's, it is, uh, I've said this before. Hockey player called Bobby Hall, very famous. In 71 or 72, he was the top guy in the NHL. WHA starts up a rival league. They signed him for a million dollars, which was huge money at the time. The moment he signed, everybody in the league, including my dad, got a raise to not go WHA. Fast forward almost 50 years later, Chris Jericho does the same thing for the wrestling business. Bobby Hall of the wrestling yeah. business. I love that. I've heard you tell that before. Great story. Uh, any, how much, um, uh, how much, uh, creative other than your character do you have in in AEW? is it something that you get involved with or no, is that something no that do i want to um when it comes to my stuff i'm all about it sure i approve it all sure if i'm not coming up with it i'm collaborating everybody else's stuff i can't i can't worry about that and that's one of the reasons why i'm not one of the evps or any of that stuff I, I don't i don't have time for the backstage stuff i'm far too professionally selfish to worry about anybody else's no, i have ideas and thoughts more logistically and timing wise, not having to rush things, but I can't control anybody else's stuff because I'm, I'm not the boss. There's only one boss, and that's Tony Khan. So if I, it's the same thing as WWE. If I go write a bunch of stuff and someone doesn't want to do it and changes it all, then I'm just wasting my time. So I would just worry about my own stuff. So let's, and I hate to bring this up, but it's something that I know that we shared. And uh, uh, t- talk to me a little bit about Chris Benoit. I know uh, talking to you at the time that you could not wrap your head around the fact that Chris had done what he did. And I sort of saw it coming, not really, but wasn't surprised. And we have, I don't know if you remember because I know you spoke to a lot of people, but I can remember having a lot of conversations, you know, trying to explain to you. Now that it's been so much time has passed and you sort of got your head around it, what, where, 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 does your, where did your head fall on what actually happened? In- I don't know, man. I think we've discussed this before. And actually, I just did a, a big thing for uh, Dark Side of the Ring. I knew that. And that's one of the yeah. reasons why I wanted to bring yeah, it up. Yeah, and I think it's going to be really cool because David is involved and uh, Nancy's sister, Sandra, myself, Dean, um, Chavo. So, I mean, you know, what do you even say about it? You know, it, it's just one of those terrible moments in life, and I don't think you can ever explain it. Um, you said you saw it coming. I can see signs in retrospect, but still, once again, you're talking about a guy that if, you know, I had to go out of the country and needed somebody to leave my kids with, I would have called him probably first and foremost. A guy that if you put 100 people in a row and said, who would do something like this, he would be near the end. But also, too, one of the most driven, intense people I've ever met so, you know, who really knows the reasons why? Um, I think now CTE in 2019 is much more understandable than it was in 2007. I think if somebody had the same signs and symptoms then as they did now, or now as they did then, you'd probably seek help and realize you're not going crazy or whatever it may be. Um, it's a weird thing. It's just part of, for me and part of my life, from a professional standpoint, from a personal standpoint, put that aside. Professional standpoint, it's even worse because a lot of my best matches were with Chris and they'll never be seen and I can't watch them. Yeah. You know? So it, it's, it, I know at one point that it was voted the best match in Raw history, Jericho and Benoit versus Hunter in, in, in Austin. I'll probably never see it again. And if anybody else does, it's not one of those ones that is going to be shown for years to come on the WWE Network or whatever. Um, so from a professional standpoint, it really affected me as well as a personal one. 
Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before, and I don't want to expand on it, but for some for some reason, um, we had uh, Johnny, they trusted Johnny Grunge, and for some reason, Johnny Grunge trusted me with all their craziness, which was how I did. Um, the Jericruz is coming up, the second one. Uh, I remember when uh, when we were texting about the first one, because uh, I was actually trying to plan a much smaller thing with Terry Funk with Bob Ryder at TNA um, when you announced it, which totally blew anything I was thinking about out the water. You had texted me and said it was one of the probably the hardest thing you ever worked on. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I, it's funny because there's a lot of people that said that, and in retrospect, it's always like, yeah, I was working on it too. And I'm not saying that you weren't. I'm sure that, that you had some inroads, but I worked three years to get it going. And, you know, it's not easy to do. And once we got it, it was great. But, you know, everyone made money on the cruise except for me. <laughs> but that was not the point. The point was to make it an annual destination vacation, similar to the Kiss Cruise, which is where I got the idea in the first place. So this year, I'll probably make some of that money back. And next year, maybe I'll be... It'll be breaking even, but it's not about that. It's to provide, once again, who has their own cruise, right? And, and who who has their own champagne and who has their own podcast or their own radio show. There's a lot of things that I do that I do it not for the money, but just for the I'm cool, shocked you didn't cool make factor. any money last year off of that. Oh, I lost a lot of money. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm shocked by But there's that. a lot of reasons for that. It's your first one. A lot of things that you don't expect to happen, happen. A lot of things that sounded good at the time. Well, sure, give everyone an upgrade and give discounts and do this. And when I did that, sure, I sold out, but it was like a, a technical knockout. It wasn't a real yeah. knockout. This year was a real sellout four months ago. So we got a lot of a lot of the the bugs out of the system, shall we say? And in the future, we'll continue to streamline it. And I think everybody that went last year pretty much came back this year. The ones that had FOMO from not going followed and came back as er and, and went this year so it's becoming uh, a thing and that's what i wanted it to be you've gotten in the course of your career you know you've done a lot of things the podcast and dance with the stars and 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 the, the success you've attained with fozzy and 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 wrestling you've gotten to meet a lot of famous people a lot of celebrities a lot of maybe your heroes especially in the music business i'm curious who was the person that you were the most nervous to meet uh, probably paul stanley Paul Stanley. That's my all time. And hero. you guys are friends now, yeah. right? Yeah. I still get a little bit nervous if I hear like a text from him or something like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, or what am I gonna text Paul, rewrite it, rewrite it. Um, but that's 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 the, the the sole reason for me getting into a lot of different things, show business, etc. And also too, I mean, Hulk Hogan. I get texts from Hulk, uh, calls from Hulk. Still every time Hulk Hogan calls or texts, it's like I saw Rick Steamboat, uh, Rick Flair. I'm sorry. Yeah. Today put something on social media yeah. about three days ribbing. skiing is like working with Jericho. Because I was ribbing him because he fell down. Like Flair, you're from Minnesota. You don't know how to fucking <laughs> skate. What's wrong with you? But yeah, there's those guys that were kind of your heroes and your inspirations. That even when you become friends with them, it's still once in a while you go, "Holy shit!" Lars Ulrich, you know those type of guys. Flair, you know those those guys are always. Uh, it's always cool to hear from them for sure. Sure. Last last question. question. Last question. How long do you think you could, which I think you could probably do it forever, but how long would you like to keep recreating yourself before you finally say, you know what, I think it's time for Chris Jericho to walk away, if ever? Well, I mean, there's always a timeline on that. And um, it's funny that people ask me that because I don't ever really think about it. I just do it. You know, I don't sit down and go, okay, what's my new invention for today? It just happens. The bubbly thing came out, out of a came fluke. Came out of nowhere. Fluke. Yeah, came out of nowhere. And uh, once again, when I saw how popular it was right out of, out of the gate, you got to jump on it. So, um, 
I mean, to me, it's all about quality of performance. You know, uh, I went and saw the Stones this summer, and Mick is still as good as he's ever been at 75. Wrestling's a different animal. You can't wrestle at 75. Right. But I can still be in the entertainment business at 75. I could probably still be in the wrestling business at 75, just not actually taking bumps. I don't know what, what I'm going to do, though. It doesn't work that way for me as far as having any sort of timeline. Right now, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I'm, I'm uh, still having great matches. I can still have the best match on any given night. Some nights I do, some nights I don't, but I'm always, I'm always happy with my performance. When it gets to the point where I'm not happy with my performance and I start to feel like I'm eroding the legacy that I've created, I'll stop. And I won't do a retirement tour. And there's not going to be any you know, Michaels versus Flair at WrestleMania. That, no, I'll, I'll just disappear. And that's the way it should be. But for now, I'm enjoying it. Still one of the best in the business at what I do. And not a lot of other people can do what I do. I think if you put me on TV against anybody, I'll be just as entertaining, if not more, in the whole business. Anybody in the WWE, except for maybe Otis, that motherfucker is hilarious. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So um, he'll be over really big this year, too. Wait and see what Vince does with him. But I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm happy for, for what we've done with AEW. We've got a lot of work to do, but we've also accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. And I've been one of the quarterbacks for that. So I don't expect to. Bobby end, Hall. Bobby Hall, yeah. I don't expect to end that or want to end it anytime soon. I love working for AEW. I love working for the Khan family. And I'll tell you the reason why before I stop because I'm starting to get a sore throat. Um, the Khan family is a sports, a sports influence family. They own the Jaguars. They sure. own the Fulham Football Club in England. They see things from a sports perspective. Vince sees things from a wrestling perspective where the performers are, you know, it's old school Carney, right? I, how you doing, Brazzler? Khan's don't know how to speak Carney. They know how to treat athletes. They know how to treat their stars. And for me, it's a whole different world as far as, yeah, the money's great, but it's the treatment, uh, the attitude, uh, how they take care of the performers. That's a lot more important to me now at 49 than it was when I was 29. So I don't expect to be leaving that organization anytime soon. I wouldn't expect that you would. Hey, thanks for the time, Chris. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it too, man, even though you did take an extra 15 minutes. Fucker. <laughs> So how about that, ladies and gentlemen? Chris Jericho to lead off 2020, and it's all downhill from. <laughs> we're gonna. Hey, that, that, now my goal is to strive to outdo myself, and that's not an easy task. But we hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it was fun to uh, to reconnect and and go over and, and and appreciate the good words on the real estate. If you know anybody who lives in Florida, is moving to Florida, trying to sell their house in Florida, uh, you could hit me up. You have Chris Jericho is a happy customer. You can't be doing that bad. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, we may not be able to outdo Chris Jericho anytime soon, but we are trying our damnedest. And in that vein, really excited to let you know that our next two guests are two people that I've really been trying to have on this podcast for a long time. One we finally got in touch with. And that's next week. Superstar Bill Dundee is going to come and tell stories from the Memphis Territory. I can't wait to ask him about how he convinced his wife to get her head shaved in the Jerry Lawler feud. He, he got his head shaved and then he put up his wife's hair and, and son of a bitch, his wife got his head, her head shaved. So I can't wait to hear about that. And, uh, and all his, uh, I, I didn't realize either that cause I started doing research for it. He started off uh, as a trapeze artist in the circus. So this, I, I got to spend some time with Bill when Bill was in WCW as a sort of valet for, for Steve Regal. And he's a blast. So if you love storytelling and you love 
hearing about territories and all the crazy stuff they did in Memphis, suggest that you uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Tell everybody that you know, because Bill Dundee will be here next week. This next person who will be here the week after, I've been trying to get in contact with for two years because he has a story to tell that he's never told. And talking about the trainer at the WCW power plant. Uh, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Dwayne Bruce, and uh, he's has never done a podcast before. He's actually been out of the business. So he doesn't even do appearances, but we're going to have him on. We got it confirmed. He's looking forward to doing it. If you have any questions for either Bill Dundee or for Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, hit us up at Twitter at David Penzer, all one word. I'd love to take your questions. And um, I, I think both of them have an ex- exciting story to tell. I know Bill Dundee's wrote a book, so his is already out there, but we'll explore it a little bit in more depth. And Dwayne Bruce, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, is an open record. He did train Goldberg, by the way, and a ton of other people in that power plant. So um, it'll be interesting to see hear what he has to say about the WCW Monday Night Wars and how that all transpired. So that and so much more is coming up for you on City Ringside. As we said, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. If you can, please leave a review. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, put it on Twitter, and we appreciate your support. Until next time, this is David Penzer, still City Ringside. Happy New Year! Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Radio Influence strives to bring you excellence in podcasting. We work with personalities like TV chef Brian Duffy, radio personalities like Ian Beckles, news and political pundits like independent journalists Frank and Tracy Beans, experts from the sports world like veteran football scout and coach Chris Landry, pro wrestling personality David Penzer, MMA experts Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan, and strength and conditioning coach Jeff Crushell. If you're looking for food, sports, music, entertainment, politics, no matter the topic, Radio Influence has something for everyone. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.